you are now entering the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. In today's episode, I'm talking with the authors of a book about how video games approach philosophical topics. Because a lot of people don't think they're interested in philosophy, but video games bring up a lot of philosophical topics all the time, and they bring it in in a way that is easy to understand and easy to get into. So I think video games are great at kind of tricking you into getting into philosophical discussions and, you know, going through philosophical debates in your mind. And I've thought that for a while, so I'm really excited to talk with two people who have really dug deep into it. So even if you don't think that philosophy is your thing, uh, stick with us, and I I bet that we'll mention a game that you like and that you're interested in. So I think you might be surprised. Before we get there, I gotta talk about one thing. If you're listening to this on launch day, then tomorrow I'm giving out another game. I'm giving out Luna's Wandering Stars, which is a game from Serenity Forge, which I talked to the creator of Serenity Forge in episode 5 of this podcast. This is a really interesting game, and I'm looking forward to getting it into someone's hands. So if you are interested, go to the loot page. That's plus7intelligence.com slash loot, L-O-O-T. There's also a link in the show notes. Just go there. It's very easy to enter. To enter, all you have to do is some things that you're probably doing every day anyway, like visiting a Facebook page, following a Twitter account, leaving a review. Any one of those things will get you entered into the drawing. Not only that, but you'll be entered into future drawings as well. So if you like what's going on with the show, check out the loot page. Do that. It's a great way to support the show, and you might get a sweet game out of it. All right, now that we've talked about that, we can get on to the interview. All right, I'm here with Jordan Erica Weber. She writes about video games for The Guardian and is the resident gaming expert on The Gadget Show. And Dan Griliopoulos, a journalist who has also done scripting for several games and is currently the content editor for the simulation firm Improbable. And they are the authors of the book, 10 Things Video Games Can Teach Us, about life, philosophy, and everything. So thank you so much for coming on the show, you two. Hey, thank you. So yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So what inspired the the creation of this book? I guess for me, uh, I think we've uh, we're probably both of us, probably, we both have a lifelong love of games and philosophy. We've always uh, played games. We've always studied philosophy. We've always read it. And I, I, I studied at the university. I think Jordan did as well. And... Um, mm-hmm. We met, we met at an event. I'd already started writing something about uh, philosophy video games and I met Jordan and she knew modern philosophy better than I did by a long way because I kind of start with Plato and stop mid-18th century. And then, uh, That's yeah, an Oxford then... student for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Everything's a footnote to Plato. So, um, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, then Jordan had the chutzpah to go and pitch the book to somebody and, uh, yeah, that's, that's where we went from there. We were at a party and I heard Dan telling somebody else that he was thinking of writing a book about philosophy and video games. And I'd had the same thought in the back of my mind for probably about a year. And I panicked because I thought Dan was going to beat me and that I would have lost my chance. 
Um, so I told him I'd also been thinking of writing a book about philosophy and games. Um, and Dan very kindly said that we should write it together. And then we realized that we'd studied completely separate spheres of philosophy anyway, because uh, Dan went to uh, a very old fashioned university, uh, Oxford, mm -hmm. and I went to a very modern university, Warwick, which is only about 50 years old or something. So I have a very modern outlook on the subject and we just studied completely different topics. So we were able to kind of divide up the, uh, the, whole, the whole school like that. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you're, you're kind of more modern metaphysics and that kind of stuff, mm. and more eth ethics, really, when it gets down to it. Which is quite funny mm. because um, I was on um, BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour back when I was at university, when I was about 20, talking about why there aren't more women philosophers um, after graduate level. And they said that there's this um, stereotype that women like the soft subjects of philosophy, like ethics, and men prefer the harder <laughs> subjects, like the analytic stuff. And we've kind of subverted that stereotype. Yes, well, I think I'm probably more I'm quite feminine and you're quite masculine when it gets down to it. <laughs> you are quite soft. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Yeah, so that's where, and then I went to a, I went to a book launch, and I found a publisher, and I accosted him at a party, and um, and now we have a book. Oh, that's great! Yeah, I I definitely know that fear of uh, you see someone who has a project that's similar to one that you're just starting, and you know it's your idea, so you're super protective of it, and so you're terrified that someone else has that idea too. But that's really cool that you uh, you collaborated on it and joined forces. I'm very forceful. <laughs> I don't think you could. Have I'm said very soft. No. Yeah, I'm very soft. I was just happy somebody else was interested and was keen to do explore the same topics. So yeah. Well, we knew I we'd at least a... have one reader each. <laughs> each other. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, how did you decide which topics you would explore in the book? Uh, obviously, philosophy and in ethics has a lot of possible avenues to go down. Mm. Well, I mean, as Dan said, he'd already written something. He'd started writing anyway, and I'd written an essay about um, Bioshock Infinite and personal identity. So we both had kind of good starting points of topics we knew would go in the book. And then I think what we did is we kind of, we made lists of the subjects we'd studied at university um, <laughs> and then picked <laughs> the ones we could remember best anyway. And we picked out <laughs> ones that we thought might work. And then we um, found that a few of them didn't work and got rid of them. Uh, and then kind of panicked. And I think we each ended up adding a bonus chapter to make it up to 10 mm -hmm. because the publisher <laughs> wanted 10. Because it made it, it made for a sexy book title. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. we actually ended up with about 30 chapter ideas, uh, which we cut down to about... I think that was you. Yeah, <laughs> we had it, and we cut them down to about 10. And then, yes, and then we had to kind of... Well, I think I think for me it was something like we were trying to write a chapter about philosophical logic, and we took spoke, I spoke mm. to Zach, Zach Barth, who created Infiniminer, which was a precursor to Minecraft, and created Space Chem and Infinifactory, and these wonderful logical games, um, which mm. basically teach you to think rationally. And I spoke to him, and I said, you know, is there any basis, you know, in philosophical logic? Because philosophical logic divided from mathematical logic, probably in the late nineteenth century, and he basically said no. <laughs> and then I spoke to some philosophers and said, "Is any you know has philosophical logic contributed to mathematical logic since the nineteenth century?" And they basically said, "No." So they we said, didn't "No, Dan, you're stuck in the past." <laughs> exactly. No, we didn't do that chapter. So yeah, yeah, that's how we ended up with the chapters we got anyway. Mm. But there are quite a few that came really readily, aren't there? 
Yeah, there were lo- there were lots of just some games that just work as philosophical texts. I mean, like Bioshock, the Ultima series, uh, Soma, To the Moon, uh, Papers Please, games like that, all of which explore like seem to fit naturally into the standard sections of philosophy. Like Bioshock is a uh, kind of identity and. Uh, Ayn Rand's objectivism and Ultima is virtue ethics. Soma is probably identity and transhumanism. And To the Moon is mourning and loss and kind of the more soft Alan de Botton style of philosophy. And then Papers, Please is pure political philosophy, red in tooth and claw. So, um, yeah, there's mm-hmm. the games that just work. And then other ones we kind of explored a bit more. What was the, the first time that you realized that a video game you were playing was presenting you with a, a philosophical question? Um, I guess, I mean, obviously everybody knows Bioshock and everyone knows Bioshock has those philosophical issues to it, uh, like Aaron's objectivism, mm-hmm. but that Bioshock is a draws on System Shock, which was a spiritual precursor that, that kind of had a, a shared team and spiritual System Shock also had those questions about what it is to be human, what lives are valuable. That was kind of in there. And before that, which was one of the first games I played many years ago was Ultimate Underworld, which was the same, <laughs> the same engine as System Shock, the same development team, but maybe three or four years before and that was uh there's a big you know spoiler so anyone who's not played a game since from 1993 um that that game had a big choice towards the end about sacrificing the few for the many um and you either made the choice or you stopped playing the game so that was the first one for me was ultimate underworld Mm, the question of whether to sacrifice the few to save the many is really common trope in video games once you know to look for it um, but also yeah. you oh, yeah. find, so Dan, you talked about how it's the same team that kind of runs through all these games. Mm-hmm. And you find that there are a few kind of well-known writers in video games who really, really like exploring philosophical topics. So you'll play games like, you know, anything by Ken Levine or, again, Soma is such a fantastic philosophical game. The writer Thomas Grip, he intended that to be a philosophical game. You've got Tom Joubert as well with The Swapper and the other games that he's worked on, The Talus Principle. So you kind of find that there are these kind of clusters of games that were meant to be philosophical and they inspire these kinds of thoughts in people. And then you have Chris Avalone, of course. Uh, and, and it's interesting, Chris Avalone, who did um, Planescape Torment and uh, lots of the Obsidian games like Knights of the Old Republic, which have explicit choices between good and evil. Um, but it's fascinating p- talking to people like Avalone and Levine, who we did talk to for the book. Um, it's fascinating that they often see this philosophy just as material that it's more just entertainment mm. they don't they don't subscribe to anything that they put in the game they just think of it more as entertainment and that's that's a you know that, that that's an interesting viewpoint um but obviously for us it's more that these are philosophy is about making strong decisions about working out how the world works and you know to a philosopher philosophy is important to a game designer it's material i think it's a mm. i think it's a privileged viewpoint isn't it it's a certain kind of intellectual white man who's read a lot of books and thinks, <laughs> oh, you know, it would make for a good story. <laughs> yeah, and you don't have to Let's worry about Let's the... explore these topics and not yes. engage with them. <laughs> yes, the kind of person who'd never have to throw a person under a bus to save 10 people. No. <laughs> oh, um, so I guess another question I had was, why talk about the overlap of video games and philosophy? Like, what is the difference between presenting these philosophical topics through a game as opposed to other media that we've that we've talked about you know whether it's books or poetry or tv what's the, what's the difference with video games so is it all right if i take this one down go for it yeah it's your yeah your, your na- native topic go for it 
So I think the very first chapter in the book actually is is kind of an introductory chapter um, that I wrote about this, basically why video games are good for exploring philosophy. Um, and the argument that I make is that games can be interpreted as thought experiments, which is, um, as you probably know, a kind of common methodology in the study of philosophy. So obviously in science, you have experiments where you, you know, you perform them in the real physical world, but you can't often do that in philosophy because of ethical limitations or financial ones or physical ones you know the world just isn't set up in the right way to think about those topics so you do these kind of imaginary experiments like so the question of whether to sacrifice the few to save the many is known as the trolley problem in philosophy the kind of famous example of a runaway train and whether you'd pull the lever to uh, kill one person if it would save five um and the the point of a of a thought experiment is that it has both this kind of thought aspect, which is the the narrative, the story around it, and the experimental aspect, which is the kind of interaction of the variables. And, and it's that side of things that I think is far more effective in video games because of their interactivity. So the fact that, for example, if you're exploring the trolley problem, if you address a classroom full of philosophy students and you ask them what they would do, they can just easily say, oh, yes, no, of course I'd pull the lever. But if you have it in a video game, you know, you present this dilemma in the context of a complex narrative that they've been exploring through the eyes of, you know, a character that they've come to know, that they feel in control of, they feel immersed in the narrative, and then you make them make a decision. They actually have to press a button to, to pull that lever or to make that decision and they have to watch the consequences play out on scene and it's just much more engaging um, and I think encourages much more thought than if somebody just asks you kind of offhand in a classroom. Uh, so I think that's where mm. video games have a benefit over other media. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's Fable 2, which again, spoilers, if anyone's not played Fable 2 and a very old game now <laughs> is, is, is going to play it at some point, this is a spoiler, uh, skip the next 30 seconds, uh, there's a section at the very end of the game where you're given the choice between your dog, your family, or half the people in the world who all have been killed during the, the course of the story. You get to choose between which one of them you resurrect, like literally half the population or your family or your dog and there's some terrifying statistic about the number of people who resurrected the dog because they thought that they would never get it back otherwise and the dog was the most important thing to them in the game because it could sniff out treasure so um there's you know there's a lot of value there if they didn't choose a dog they chose a family and so few people chose everybody in the world because they didn't know all those people in the world didn't really mean much to them anyway um you know that that was that's a kind of an immediacy of the the kind of way we associate, uh, you know, the family with what is valuable to us, and also what's immediately valuable. That said, there was a um, is it Pippin Barr, who is a kind of a lect- and a games academic, who makes kinds of philosophical ga- mm. philosophical games on the internet. He made a version of the trolley problem online, and it's a very simple game. But when you play through it, at some point during the game, it asks you for the name of someone dear to you, and then towards the end of the game, when you have to throw that lever to kill somebody and save five people, it puts their name in place. And I put my daughter's name in it. And as Jordan said, as a classic philosophical stu- philosophy student, I would always answer, yes, I, you know, I'd kill the five people to save the one. That's the thing I'd do. I was unable to click the button to kill, my, kill the representation of my daughter, even though it was only her name, rather than the five people. And completely rational, but it's in a completely emotional response I was having to that very simple problem from a very simple game. Um, Mm, that's incredibly revealing yeah it's incredibly revealing my my native immorality which uh, I must look deeper into when I get a chance Um, but yeah (laughs) there's there's a whole other section with video games that are also interactive that's 
it, they are about interactivity and as jordan said the they give an they give an exploration of how you how free will actually operates in reality rather than how we hope it operates and how we want to think about about ourselves um you know that's that's what games are um and they they do present moral questions to us natively you know people people use them to just to to create their own morality um i think there's a quote at the beginning of the book from edward snowden where um glenn greenwald the journalist is interviewing him and he realizes that snowden has drawn his morality explicitly from the video games he played as a child uh, things like tekken which told him that you know the the good person was a person who stood up to oppression and stood up to to overwhelming odds and succeeded that way and that's why one of the reasons snowden did what he did which was to release all those files and whether you think he did was, what he did was a good thing or a bad thing he did a moral thing because he'd been educated in morality by video games which is bizarre but that's the modern world and that's how a lot of yeah. us that this is the media we are most exposed to and this is the media where we have interactivity so we get to make those choices and we get to make used to making choices which are good choices you know uh, subjectively good anyway so I, I did I do the rambling thing. I know I just wanted to add that one of the main reasons I think that video games are good for exploring philosophy is that video games are fun. And there are so many people out there who if you gave them a philosophy book or a video game, they definitely prefer the video game over the book. So if you want to get mm. especially young people interested in philosophical ideas, you're better off giving them a game, <laughs> if we're being honest. Yeah, and uh, I think it's interesting because... Now there's a lot of like social experiments and brand research and all these different ways that people are collecting information about people's behavior using games. So they're they're realizing that games are a great way to to tap into what people really think. And so so kind of looking back on the history of video games, you have basically these experiments that are, have been ongoing to see how people react in these circumstances and sometimes presenting these philosophical questions. And uh, we have been sitting on all this information about how people really think about these philosophical questions, mm -hmm. or at least how they think about them within the context of the game. And there's been all this information sitting out there that now people like you and people that you've talked to are now looking at and uh, realizing the value of. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's people like uh, was it Dr. Edward Castronova who's done those scientific experiments inside MMOs and who's just kind of, who showed how people behave in when they're in conditions of what, what appear to be scarcity. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it is interesting. So a lot of these games, they like you said, uh, Bioshock, they Bioshock and games like that, they they present philosophical questions very deliberately, right? It's it's a it's a big part of the narrative. And sometimes plays, you know, basically poses those questions directly to the player, sometimes very directly. What are some ways that video games present these philosophical topics indirectly or even unintentionally? Well, um, any video game that has ghosts in it supports Cartesian dualism, which is a theory of the philosophy of mind. Um, I wrote, so as we said, some of the chapters came quite easily, you know, there are games that are intended to discuss particular philosophical topics, but for some of them, we kind of had to go searching. 
Um, and I found it quite interesting going through the philosophy of mind chapter. You know, I divided it up into, I think I went for three theories in the end. So I went for Cartesian dualism, which is the the theory that minds are made of special different kind of stuff that the body, that this, they're this kind of magical soul substance that doesn't work in the same way as our bodies do. Um, and then I went for um, identity theory, which is the theory that the mind is just the brain or the central nervous system, that there's no more to it than that. It's just the same thing as that kind of biological mass. And then finally, functionalism which is the theory that um, if it functions like a, like a mind, um, even if it doesn't look like what we think a mind would look like, then it counts as a mind. Mm-hmm. So if there's some kind of system, like maybe a machine, and you put in the right inputs and you get exactly the same outputs as you would with a human mind, then it counts as a mind. And I actually found quite a few games that kind of align with each of those three theories. And very few of them, I think, intended to. It's just that if you put robots in your game then you support functionalism. And if you put ghosts in your game, then you support Cartesian dualism because you support the idea that there's a kind of separate magical soul separate from your body. I guess Soma is probably the only game that we could say did that deliberately. And again, it's a fantastic... I mean, if if you want to... If there was one game to play uh, that talks about philosophy in video games, it's Soma Mm. because it is such a masterpiece in how it indirectly makes you experience all the philosophical questions about identity about transhumanism and about philosophy of mind just crammed into a a, mm. a, a very well-crafted horror narrative yeah i hated that game when <laughs> i first started playing it because i thought it was just a kind of regular horror game and then when i realized what it was doing i fell in love with it it's one of my favorite games now <laughs> i guess the thing the thing is that when games unintentionally present philosophical questions that's the same as when books or films do because you can interpret anything into a text the intention of the author is alien unless you actually want to hunt it out and and even then you can't rely on the word of what the author says because they didn't always mean to do the things that they ended up doing um so you can read anything into a into a game um we were actually looking for games that either intentionally did this or were so true to a particular philosophy that that they that they just fit in naturally with how we would want to talk about that philosophy and how ancient authors and modern authors have talked about that philosophy. The quote you you gave or the the story about Edward Snowden, I didn't know that. Um, that's really fascinating, but uh, it really underlies how how significant the video games can be in shaping people's philosophy and you know sometimes their ethics. Um, I think that this is really relevant with. You know, a lot of these topics that you're talking about, they're topics that are from science fiction, but now with things like artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, the rise of automation, Mm -hmm. now these topics are very relevant because how you relate to an artificial intelligence, a lot of people had a majority of their experience with quote unquote artificial intelligence with NPCs in a game. And then now it's going to be in your house, you're going to have an artificial intelligence that you deal with day to day. So, so these topics are, are very relevant to, uh, to, to modern life or soon to be modern life. I think that's true. I mean, science fiction has always, uh, has, I mean, back to HG Wells's day and Jules Verne's day and the ancients who wrote kind of mad science fiction about the moon or, or like Lucretius. Um, all of these <laughs> people have written things that they are, they are, kind of trying to predict what the future is going to be uh, and quite often they've been right but not right in the way they thought they would be so yeah that's that's kind of what's happening here as well is people are 
generating thought experiments about the way the world might be and then letting you play through the consequences of them. Yeah, and another topic that's it's really interesting. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. Thing is uh, virtual reality, because I remember just a few years ago that uh, being immersed in a virtual world was uh, was a joke. And now, now the conversation has shifted to, well, when we get to this point, uh, what is it going to be like? How are you going to interact with each other? Uh, how are people going to treat the value of the virtual environment versus the the real world and, and the people around them yeah mm, yeah one of my chapters is entirely about virtual reality um i spoke to a philosopher called david chalmers who has this really interesting theory that virtual reality so we we kind of um we've come to think of virtual experiences as almost like illusions you know they're showing you something that isn't really there it's kind of like mm. you know like the quote from neuromancer it's mass hallucination but um, but Chalmers has this counter theory where he says virtual reality, it's not illusory experience, it's real experience, just not of physical objects, but of kind of digital mm -hmm. objects. So by his theory, then virtual worlds have the same kind of status as the physical world. They're just made of different stuff. And by that logic, mm -hmm. you know, when you come to talk about things like the experience machine, like if there was a virtual world that you could plug yourself into and it would give you perfect experiences, would you? The um, the instinct that we're supposed to have is that we'd say no, because no matter how perfect the experience is, they're not real. But by Chalmers theory, we'd say yes, no, of course. Mm, and that's weirdly a, a narrative that goes back to well, obviously for the ancients, but to people like Bishop Berkeley in the 17th century, who was an idealist who believed that the entire world was ideas and that we perceived only ideas and therefore an imagined world was as real as a a, a kind of the physical world we live in, really. So uh, it's interesting that those are topics that crop up again and again. Hmm. Yeah, well, there's there's certainly a contingent of people that seem to seem to act as if the virtual world has value, you know, if you're devoting your real time and real money into virtual objects or virtual status, then then certainly some people have started to blur the lines between the two. So that's going to be an interesting thing to see, especially because this generation has grown up around games their whole life. So they're going to have probably a different outlook and a different familiarity with with game worlds and virtual reality than, than generations past. Yeah, definitely. I mean... Right, exactly. <laughs> you go, Jordan. No, I was just going to say, Chess, you're right, that all these subjects are becoming more and more relevant as the kind of technology comes in, as we get artificial intelligence and as we get virtual reality. All of these things that philosophers have been talking about for decades, if not centuries, um, they're becoming more and more relevant. So it's, I think it's more and more important that people do engage in philosophical thought. And of course, so everyone should buy the book. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I guess, of course, as well. There's the the argument that uh, that different generations have different mindsets, and that you know our generation has coped particularly well with the mobile phone and the advent of the internet. Or rather, my generation, as Jordan's generation, is a bit younger than me. Um, but um, 
But uh, yes, yeah, so it's entirely plausible that virtual worlds could have equal value or superior value to the the tedious physical world. And that you know we're obviously seeing that trend in America at the moment, where there's a re- reports are coming out that lots of young men are not not, not working anymore because they prefer to spend their time uh, in virtual worlds. Um, that's an interesting trend. Um, it tallies with. You know, it could be the thing that saves us if automation is going to take over the world. If all of the jobs are going to be taken by robots or cobots, then having virtual worlds that the people who can't work can retreat into is valuable and will save the world. Yeah, that actually reminds me of um, one of the things that NASA is looking into for uh, for deep space travel is what do you do if you have astronauts up there that have essentially nothing to do while they're in three months of transit. How do you prevent them from going insane, being locked in a box? One of the ideas is to actually create a game that can interact back with uh, players on Earth so they can feel that connection and they can have that constant mental stimulation, the constant motivation that, that while players on Earth have, something to keep their mind activated, to keep interested in. So, yeah, I mean, once you magnify that by suddenly 10 million artificial intelligence or robots have taken 10 million jobs, what do you do with those people? How are they going to how are they going to live their lives, even avoiding the whole topic of the financial and economic impact? You know, what do they do with that time? <laughs> how do we how do we live in a world where people's needs are taken care of, but they don't have anything to you know, they don't have a job to go to 40 hours a week. Yeah, I suppose we strap them all in VR headsets and set them off into space, leave Earth under the rule <laughs> of the robots, and then we end up with near automata. Oh, spoilers, I've not finished it yet. Ah. <laughs> Isn't that the start? I'd... You know at the beginning that humans <laughs> oh, are gone. Sh- <laughs> I've only played through the I've only played about two thirds of the way through the first playthrough. I know there are five playthroughs, so um anyway. Gosh, no, I'm not that far. <laughs> If I've spoiled anything, it's unintentional. Oh, maybe I wasn't listening. Never mind. Um, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I, as you know, I work for this uh, technology firm called Improbable. And one of the jokes that our founders often make is that we're building the Matrix. Um, because we're a simulation firm and we provide simulation technology for people to produce these enormous virtual worlds. So um, I guess we're kind of hoping that people find equal meaning in the virtual world to the real world. Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so what kind of simulations are are you talking about? What's the purpose of them? Uh, well, I mean, there there are different purposes, and uh, sorry for hijacking this conversation, Jordan. Um, but the the we have worked with uh, corporate clients, and we work with games clients. So, games clients like Bossa Studios, who made Surgeon Simulator, are making a game called Worlds Adrift, which is a full three D thousand kilometer squared. A physics-enabled game where people go and build floating spaceships or all physics. They're all built out of physical parts and then try and fly fly their way through storm walls in this open-world, weird, floating islands universe. Um, The games like that. So that's a game that's being done. And we've also done things like build complete simulations of cities um, where they simulate the power, they simulate the telephone network, they simulate pedestrians, they simulate the buildings sewer network and then they work out what happens if you knock out the power in like a particular spot in the city that kind of thing so uh you know simulations that parallel the real world simulations that are just for games or simulations that interpenetrate the real world and hopefully will have a similar kind of value to the real world 
or draw value from the real world, you know, like Pokemon mm-hmm. Go does. I, I see you have one uh, one chapter on on government and <laughs> rights and how like some historical games interplay with those ideas. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? I guess it's my chapter then. <laughs> um, yes. It's okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think we start from the point that you know, uh, we go back to things like Plato's Republic, which is the first kind of proper thesis we've got that exists still anyway on what it is for uh, just society, what a good society would look like. Um, and games have produced lots of different theories and lots of different models for that. Uh, some very clever games like the Europa, Europa, Europa Universalis and Crusader Kings series from Paradox have been almost uh, like essays on what happens if you vary every aspect of a government, uh, at least in the medieval areas, which is what they cover. Um, so if you have royalty that inherit by divine right of king that have divine right of kings inherit by uh, particular forms of lineage where the, where the oldest woman inherits or the the oldest person of a given generation inherits what happens to the system of government um or you have things like you have games like rust which seems like a really uh primitive violent game but provides an excellent kind of explication of theories about the state of nature which philosophers like hobbes and Locke and Rousseau talked about uh, how we build up from a primitive, violent state of nature and how people form societies. Rust, it, people in Rust try to form societies. They try to make friends with other people and try to build fortresses and create societies, and then the game resets, and they have to do it again and again. And wh- how they cheat their way through that is a good look at how, um, what, you know, at the concept of a justified revolution, which is something people have to do every now and then when the, when a government like the developers of the game rust don't give people the ability to develop further in their society so there there are lots of games that explore government rights and politics in lots of different ways but i could talk about that forever i probably shouldn't <laughs> oh that's great um i realized i skipped skipped over one of my own questions which was um who is the book directed to who like what is the the goal of of the book and and who are you addressing it to? I think I wanted to write something that would... I mean, my initial goal was to write something that would finally make use of this philosophy degree that I have. Um, that is otherwise not, you know... It's, it's not the, the best thing to have at the top of a CV. Um, but I think as far as an intended audience... I wanted something that would introduce philosophical ideas in an accessible way because so much of philosophy is just illegible. Um, Philosophers are terrible at writing. You can't understand anything they're saying, especially the analytic lot. Um, And I just wanted... I think philosophy is in crisis, especially in this country. Um, you know, philosophy departments are being closed in universities. It's not taught in schools and it should be. And I just wanted something that kind of introduced those fascinating conversations at a kind of basic level. And if there's anything that everybody loves to talk about, it's video games. So they just seemed like a great kind of door to to open onto the world of philosophy through. Yeah, I, that, that definitely makes sense. I mean, I know you mentioned earlier everybody has 
has played games. And so it's it's a way to kind of be a bridge to, to bring those topics in. You know, I know that when, uh, and they're, they're topics that, you know, maybe aren't addressed in other other media or not addressed in, in the same way where people are becoming an active participant in, you know, making a, you know, even if it's a kind of fake philosophical choice, they are the one pushing the button, directing the train to go, <laughs> directing the virtual train. You know, I know that when when I played Mass Effect, particularly Mass Effect 2, there were so many conversations about the, the decisions in that game. The one I remember that was like, really got the most discussion was, what do you do when there's a, a race of artificial intelligence and and they've gone rogue and you have an opportunity to either completely destroy them or reset them? And so there, there's a whole bunch of overlapping philosophical questions of, well, there's the morality of it. And then there's just the base level of what do you believe about about machines? Can they have their own uh, free will or their own agency? And that that one scenario, that one mission sparked all this debate and all this discussion. And that's really amazing that uh, that it brought that discussion to people that, you know, may never have thought about it in those terms or never went to a philosophy class, never were taught about about these different topics. Right, exactly. There's a whole um, discussion of that that mission, in fact, in the book. And I spoke to a couple of the writers behind it um, who wrote kind of Legion and the Geth stuff. Um, and that it's just mm-hmm. really, really fascinating conversation that I had with them actually about the way that the the kind of morality system in Mass Effect um, actually may have restricted what they were able to do there because you have to assign choices in that game to either Paragon or Renegade, which suggests that one of them is better mm-hmm. than the other. And I think that actually rewriting the Geth turns out to be the Paragon option. Whereas if you believe that the Geth are conscious beings, then rewriting might be seen as worse than destruction because, you know, you would think that having your brain wiped and a new personality installed would be surely worse than death. Mm -hmm. But then there's questions Mm -hmm. about continuity of consciousness. If they they have that continuity and they haven't died, then there's still something there. So... Yeah, there, there, there's there's a whole discussion about it. Certainly, mm-hmm. there's, there's, it's a discussion that goes over identity. Over the problem with philosophy is, as soon as you start a conversation about one topic, and it's got <laughs> a concrete example, it goes into every other aspect immediately, and you have to have a a whole network of beliefs that all support <laughs> each other, which is kind of impossible. Um, so that's what we that's what that's what philosophers want to do is to to make sure that their idea structures are as rigorous and perfect and diamond like as possible, that they're clear. Um, and then we run into the real world and we have to make a compromise somewhere. All right. Awesome. So, so this was a great discussion. Was there a point in your life that you were playing a game and you can see the effects that that game had on your philosophy? Did a game, you know, have a formative role in, in shaping your philosophy about anything, any particular topic? Do you know, I don't know about kind of reaching back into older games but I do know that the the kind of moment that I realized that we were actually onto something with this book was when I played Fallout 4 um and I sided with the Institute mm-hmm. um if you haven't played Fallout 4 
the whole the the whole game can be interpreted as a thought experiment about the synths. So it's it's AI again. These are robots that look like people. Everyone in um, the Commonwealth in Fallout Four is very worried about these people, these robots. Um, and you have to pick a faction to side with. Um, you can side with the Institute, which is the kind of scientific underground that make the synths. You can side with the Brotherhood, which is a kind of religious um, group who think that the synths are an abomination and they want to destroy them. Or you can side with the Railroad, who think that the synths are conscious beings deserving of rights and they are trying to free all of the synths that they find and let them live um, as humans. And I ended up siding with the Institute. And it was only when I came to write the chapter afterwards that I realized that I had thought myself a functionalist who believed that if something functions like a mind, then it is a mind. And yet in this game, I'd found myself siding with the group that was kind of reclaiming these synths and wiping them so that they could be reprogrammed and repurposed. Um, So I've actually found a conflict (laughs) within what I thought I believed. That's fascinating. Um, I guess for me, I I played, as I said earlier, my the first game I played probably properly through was probably the Ultimate Underworld games, um, and then the Ultimate games themselves for me were they are thoroughgoing explore thoroughgoing explorations of virtue ethics, which is the ethics that there is a good way of living, and you can tell the good way of living because a good person does it, and that there are particular virtues that the good person has, and you know that that's the if a person has all these virtues that's a good person and they they're the person that does the good acts so it's not the consequences of their actions but it's the which is utilitarianism or consequentialism and it's not the rules that you follow which is deontologism duty ethics it's it's the individual themselves and i just i played these games and i i love the 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 structure of the world and i love the various philosophies that every enemy had its own version of virtue ethics but it made me think that all of these societal ethics like virtue ethics and like duty ethics are all just society based and they aren't good guides to um to be to what what is a good way to live because they are so subjective to each society and that utilitarianism however compromised it is by the difficulties of working out what the right thing to do at a given time working for the happy the happiness of the greatest number that does seem like a an ethical thing so that yes i guess in a negative way <laughs> the ultimate games established to me that utilitarianism is the right way of living rather than any other ethical system hmm. that's fascinating so i guess in general are you are you optimistic about the the philosophy that is being presented to players or uh do you think overall that that the philosophies and the the fact that philosophy plays a role at all um are you optimistic about the potential influence that these games are having I don't think they're having an influence kind of all by themselves. I don't think anyone needs to be worried that anyone is getting their ethical position solely from video games and not considering Mm. the real world and their real relationships and things. I think it's just another framing device to get you thinking about these topics in a different light. You know, you can think, oh, in real life, I might have said that. But if, if things were different, which is what video games really are, you know, they're a question about if things were different what would you do they're they're kind of counterfactual then then what would i do and it just i think it broadens your ability to think about things rather than i don't know rather than pointing you down a particular path at the exclusion of all else yeah <laughs> so i am optimistic i guess i, I guess all media are very heavily so 
uh, you know, books and films, they all have their video nasties and they have their pulp fiction and there are those things for games out there and there are also wonderful indie games and wonderful mainstream games and the mainstream games have to hide <laughs> the philosophical insights a bit better but there are games out there that have that value and I think you can't say of games in general that you know, they're good or bad I think that you've got to look at individual games you look at that Dragon Cancer and it's a wonderful exploration of what well, wonderful, depressing but a wonderful exploration of what what loss is and how parents can cope with the loss of a child that's a an interesting game even if uh, it's not a huge mainstream game so um, I would not necessarily say that Call of Duty, the Call of Duty series, is necessarily <laughs> so philosophically interesting, though there are political considerations about the no Russia, no Russian element of um, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, I think. So everything has its use. Oh, and I think mm. you've mentioned no, Call yeah, of Duty point. in one of the <laughs> chapters. I also, I guess, um, what we're saying is, you know, when you say you can't, you can't dismiss all of video games just because some of them are bad it's a similar kind of argument to saying just because there are some books that you know i'm not going to name specifics but some books that might incite mm -hmm. racial hatred for instance you wouldn't say oh are you worried about books then as a, as a media <laughs> you're worried about the influence that books can have on people mm. so i guess that's yeah, the argument. I, 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 I wouldn't damn dan brown just mm -hmm. because he's no good to read oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right that might be a good point to end so how can listeners find out more about uh, about you and about the book? We're both on Twitter. So I'm uh, Griddle Octopus on Twitter, or I'm, I've got my website at funambulism.com. And I'm unpronounceable Twitter handle, J-A-W-S-E-W, -E um, which, you know, ask me if you need an explanation of what that means. And if you just Google my name, you can find my website. It's jordanweber.com. You can find the book on Amazon and other sites. I've written a few um, kind of introductory articles about it as well. There's one on The Observer. So if you look at my profile on The Guardian, you can find that. Oh, this is all on my website. I wrote one for Eurogamer as well. So kind of just introductory articles that give a little idea of what the book's about. I'll have all the links in the show notes. <laughs> but uh, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, our pleasure. No, thank, thank you for you. having us. That's it for this week's interview. I really hope that... You all enjoyed it. I really had a ton of fun talking about this topic. And for the people listening, I hope that maybe you'll go back and look at the games that you've played before and you start thinking about, you know, maybe you were hitting on some philosophical topics in those games. And maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but you were crunching through some really heavy, deep topics. And I think that's that's something that's really cool about video games. I think that video games play a really important role in culture and philosophy is obviously a really big part of that. And here's a recent review that I got for the show. And it's left by Hecubus. He gives three stars and he says, Through this podcast, I enjoy learning about unconventional ways that video games are used in all facets of society. Currently a little dry, but it's interesting and informative. The opening and closing themes are fantastic. Thanks so much for that review, Hecubus. I appreciate the insight. I know that sometimes I'm not the best at uh, projecting all the energy and excitement that I can, but I'm working on it. I'm trying to make this show as best as I possibly can. So thanks for that feedback. And remember that leaving a review is, is really helpful for the show in a lot of ways. It's a great way for me to get feedback. So if you could leave a review, I would really appreciate it. 
As a reminder, leaving review is a way to enter the monthly sweepstakes. So all you got to do is leave a review and then go to the loot page. That's plusintelligence.com slash loot. And then mark that you have done that. And that's it. You're entered. And if you go to the loot page, it actually gives you a nice big button that'll take you to the show's Apple podcast page or the show's Stitcher page so that you can leave a review in either of those places. So check out plusintelligence.com slash loot to enter. The next drawing is the day after this episode airs, so act fast. Even if you miss this month's drawing, be sure to enter so that you can get into next month's drawing. And speaking of next month's drawing, it's a little early, but I'll go ahead and announce the game that I'm going to be giving away next. Next month, so that'll be December 7th, 2017, and I'm going to be giving away The Stanley Parable. I thought that this would be a perfect game to give away on the heels of the philosophy episode of this podcast. So I haven't completed The Stanley Parable yet, but... I really enjoy games that kind of mess with your head a little bit and break your expectations. And this is a great game that does that. And it does it in a fun and funny way that might actually bring up some philosophical topics if you really dig into it. Or if you don't want to, it is just good fun. So if you're interested in that game, the drawing again is going to be December 7th. Enter soon so you don't forget. Right now if you can. And that's everything I have for you this episode. I hope you have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.